happy Easter, happy Resurrection Day. Um, I am I'm looking, if you could see, I'm looking out to just a few faces and a sea of stuffed animals right now. So thank you for whoever did that. This actually might be very helpful to me. Um, so that, that's fun. I appreciate the encouraging notes. Uh, Flat Jacob is a little disconcerting back there because he's got a frown on his face, uh, but that's, that's really fun. Thank you for those who set that up. Um, I am going to uh, just quick read out of my life application Bible commentary. This is their introduction to Matthew, uh, not Matthew, Mark chapter 16, which we'll be going over as we finish our series in Mark this morning. He says, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the central fact of Christian history. On it, the church is built. Without it, there would be no Christian church today. Jesus' resurrection is unique. Other religions have strong ethical systems, concepts about paradise and afterlife, and various holy scriptures. Only Christianity has a God who became human, literally died for his people, and was raised again in power and glory to rule his church forever. Christians can look very different from one another, and they can hold widely varying beliefs about politics, lifestyle, and even theology, but one central belief unites and inspires all true Christians. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Amen. So that, that, that first Easter weekend, I thought Friday and Saturday must have been some of the darkest, most difficult days for those who trusted in Jesus. Yet they would come to realize that what Jesus had taught them in the quiet had taught them in the secret place, even in very dark and difficult places, would soon be brought out into the light and would soon need to be proclaimed with boldness. So for many of us, this is a season of difficulty. This is a season of darkness and confusion. And maybe we're asking ourselves, is this just wasted time? Are we just waiting for this to be over so that we can kind of resume our ordinary life? Or can we see that perhaps God has allowed this time for his purposes? That he should speak to us in that quiet uncertainty. That when he again gives us opportunity to, to be out in the open, that, that, that we would in the light share what he has taught us even in the darkness of that Friday, of that Saturday of this season of isolation. If we're faithful to do that, to listen and to proclaim in the light, then this is no waste of time. Again, I, I read last week from Streams in the Desert by L.B. Cowman and something that was particularly poignant for that day. And yesterday's reading, a, a, a day that ironically, or maybe not, we commemorate Jesus spending a full Sabbath in the grave it again was just incredibly fitting to this season. And I'm going to ask Cheryl to come up and read that now. Happy Easter, friends. Happy <laughs> I Easter, really, Cheryl. Thanks. I miss seeing your faces, but I know we're connected through the Spirit. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. 
and what is whispered in your ear proclaim from the roofs. Our Lord is constantly taking us into the dark in order to tell us something. It may be the darkness of a home where bereavement has drawn the blinds, the darkness of a lonely and desolate life in which some illness has cut us off from the light and the activity of life, or the darkness of some crushing sorrow and disappointment. It is there he tells us his secrets, great and wonderful, eternal and infinite. He causes our eyes, blinded by the glare of things on earth, to behold the heavenly constellations, and our ears suddenly detect even the whisper of his voice, which has been so often drowned out by the turmoil of earth's loud cries. Yet these revelations always come with a corresponding responsibility. What I tell you, speak in the daylight, proclaim from the roofs. We are not to linger in the darkness or stay in the closet. Soon, we will be summoned to take our position in the turmoil what we have learned. This gives new meaning to suffering, the saddest part of which is often the apparent feeling of uselessness it causes. We tend to think, how useless I am. What am I doing that is making a difference for others? Why is the, exp the expensive perfume of my soul being wasted? These are the desperate cries of the sufferer, but God has a purpose in all of it. He takes his children to higher levels of fellowship so they may hear him speaking face to face as a man speaks with his friend, and then deliver the message to those at the foot of the mountain. Where the, were the 40 days Moses spent on the mountain wasted? What about the time Elijah spent at Mount Horeb and the years Paul spent in Arabia? There is no shortcut to a life of faith, which is an absolute necessity for a holy and victorious life. We must have periods of lonely meditation and fellowship with God, our souls must have times of fellowship with him on the mountain and experience valleys of quiet rest in the shadow of a great rock. We must spend some nights beneath the stars when darkness has covered the things of earth, silenced the noise of human life, and expanded our view, revealing the infinite and the eternal. All these are as absolutely essential as food is for our bodies. In this way alone can the sense of God's presence become the unwavering possession of our souls enabling us to continually say, as the psalmist once wrote, you are near, O Lord. What a gift, isn't it? What a gift that the risen Christ is calling us closer to himself in this time and wants to speak his secrets to us. And I'm looking forward to being able to share that when we're all back together, the things that God is speaking to all of your hearts. As we uh, get ready to worship together, if you would, just join with me in a word of prayer. Father God, teach us in this quiet place what you'd have us proclaim in the light. We thank you, Lord, that the Friday of the cross and the Saturday of the grave were not the end of the story, that there is a Sunday of resurrection, and we praise you for this and we pray these things, that you bless this time together, this Easter service, Resurrection Day, that we celebrate and live in your resurrection. We pray that you are glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen.
again, we are having some technical difficulties. Uh, we are doing our best. We, we really wanted to be doing this live. We thought that that would be uh, the, the best thing to uh, do to give an experience together as community. Now, we may have to rethink that moving forward, uh, but we will keep you, because of the, some of the technical difficulties, but we'll keep you informed. Um, but hopefully you can hear me now. Hopefully we're getting a steady stream. Um, if you would, we're going to be, as I said, wrapping up our series in the Gospel of Mark. And we purposely had this series go through uh, the Passion of Christ during Lent, right up to Easter Sunday, um, and here we find ourselves in Mark chapter 16. So if you have a Bible, or you can get to uh, Mark 16 on your technology, you can do that now. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about this morning and how peculiar it might be uh, to have just a couple of people uh, on, on a Sunday morning celebration. Of course, I do have all the stuffed animals looking at me this morning, um, but... You know, Easter is often a day in which churches surge in attendance. Um, it's a day that, if we're honest, that, that even many who are the most tepid toward Christianity um, make kind of an annual trip or, or maybe a semi-annual trip out to church gatherings. It's one of the few days that maybe mom or dad or grandma or grandpa uh, might be able to persuade children or grandchildren that have long passed uh, defected from Christianity or maybe defected from uh, what they perceive as the Christian church, that, that they can persuade them back into their assemblies for one glorious morning that maybe for once or, or even once again their hearts might be uh, moved by the marvel of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So typically on Easter mornings, uh, many people put on bright colored spring shirts uh, or, or maybe floral dresses. They go to churches full of freshly cut flowers, um, and the regulars are thrilled and hopeful as their churches overflow, while many of the visitors smile politely, uh, dream of Easter supper, um, Maybe they can't quite wait for this, this strange, strange yearly ritual to be over so they can get out of their uncomfortable dress shoes. But not this year. Not this year. Millions of people who would have normally engaged in these Easter customs are now sitting at home on couches in their pajamas. And some are saddened by this, and others are thrilled that they get a year off of grandma dragging them out to church, just being real. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was mourning a little bit the idea of the potential loss of what we celebrate together on an Easter morning with another local pastor. And he reminded me that the reality of that first Easter morning was a far cry from the, the dressed-up crowds participating in what many perceive as religious obligations. And he's right. It, it was an extremely far cry from that. Mark chapter 16, the first eight verses. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene 
Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So the first thing I'd like to draw our attention to this, this Easter morning is how personal the resurrection of Jesus is. We get this story of these faithful women that the Sabbath restrictions of activity are over. So they go out and in loving devotion, they, they come with these spices to add to the corpse of Jesus. Um, it really, there, there was no true embalming back then in the, the time and place that Jesus died. It would have just been an act of love, like I said, and also a way to cover the stench of death. They didn't come to experience a miracle, even a miracle that Jesus had predicted many times was going to happen. They came just after dawn to pay their respects to a dead friend, to a dead teacher, a dead rabbi, to a dead miracle worker, a dead Lord. They realize on their way, and perhaps this is because they were moving in haste, perhaps because they're still kind of in the fog of grief, they realize that there's a problem. Who will move this, this massive stone away? And it was a really good question because these stones were, in fact, very large. I read that they could have been anywhere from two to 4,000 pounds and, and it was rolled in such a way it, that a lot of these stones had a, a, a grooved notch that the stones were rolled down into. So it was made that it was much easier to roll in than it is to roll out. It was much easier to close the tomb than it was to open it. So in this, these women intersect what we might call a, a common human predicament. Good intentions meet human limitations. But what I love is that, is that these women don't stop and say, oh, well, wait a minute, we didn't think of this. We, we've got to go home. They keep moving forward. They move forward in their known weakness. They just keep going. And, and it made me think, you know, how often... When we realize we don't have the strength or we don't have the cunning or we don't have the resources to accomplish something, we tend to stop in our tracks. 
I said, well, we can't, it can't be done. It shouldn't be done. And I just wonder how often we might miss on seeing God move because we're so prone to only move forward in our strength instead of by faith moving forward even in our weakness. These women will see that even though good intentions often meet human limitations, when human limitations meet God's power, nothing's insurmountable. So they come upon this scene and they realize that what they couldn't do themselves was already done. They come upon this scene and the stone is already rolled away. Now in hindsight, we tend to, especially on Easter morning, think of this as just a thrilling and exciting moment. But in reality, it probably would have been somewhat dreadful. So imagine, if you will, how many movies and shows that you've watched where, you know, a friend hasn't heard from a friend for a while, and they go to their house to, to uh, figure out what might be wrong, and as they go to the house, they realize that the front door is inexplicably left wide open. And it, it's at this point that your, your heart starts to beat with suspense because you say, something is surely wrong. And this wasn't... God bless you, Sean. This wasn't just the front door of a house. This was the front door of a grave. So again, if it were a movie, you'd be thinking, and and you'd probably be maybe even saying out loud, don't go in. Don't go in. They're going in. Why do they always go in? That's what you think on your couch, right? But these women do go in. And as they go in, they meet one that appeared to be as a young man. Now, the other gospel writers tell us that this young man was, in fact, an angel. Now, consider this. I'm looking at a very small... um, What is it? I'm looking at Deb right now. Deb, wow, you are like this big, little stuffed stuffed girl, I guess. Consider this. Instead of proclaiming the resurrection to nobles, to kings, instead of going into the temple and, and proclaiming it to the priests, instead of, you know, the angel could have hovered over all Jerusalem and said, he is risen. Instead... This angel, which means a messenger, he's a messenger of God, he's clearly under God's instruction, he seems to happily wait at the tomb for these few ladies to show up. You know, catchy tune. And eventually, as dawn breaks, these ladies come and, hey, ladies! Hey, don't be alarmed. I've got news for you. Say, is that how you would have scripted it? An angel, an angelic messenger of God, a mighty angel sitting in the empty tomb waiting for a few ladies to come. You know, eventually over the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he shows himself to many people. 
And, and at one time, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. But the revelation of, the, of that first morning, that first Easter morning that we celebrate today, was strikingly intimate, strikingly personal. These few women, in their awe, in their disorientation, are told by the angel that you're going to be the first to testify that Jesus is risen. And they say, go. He says, go, tell the disciples. And Peter. And Peter. Peter, the one who had so sadly fallen on his face. Peter, the one who, who had eaten his words of unbridled loyalty. Even if all others fall away, I will die with you. Peter, the denier. Yes, it's Peter that is now mentioned by name because Jesus will not give up on his people. And no one is out of the reach of God's saving grace. Not even Peter, not even you. The Gospel of John tells us that that these ladies actually go do tell the disciples that Peter and John race back to the tomb, find it empty, and they leave. And Mary Magdalene is actually there, still apparently saddened and confused, and he lingers as Peter and John walk away. And as she lingers, she sees a man who she mistakes as the gardener. Until the man she thought was the gardener, who is actually the resurrected Jesus, calls her by name. Mary. You know, listen, I am I, all about not over-individualizing Christianity, and, and, and I, especially kind of in our hyper-individualistic society that we live in. Um, it's not just about me and God, and it, it's not about me being a spiritual consumer. I think that's something we actually have to be even particularly careful of in this season that we're going through of isolation God is calling out a people. He's calling out a people called by his name. He's calling out a new salvation community to be his representatives to our communities, to the world of his love, of his message of salvation. But the resurrection, even though millions of people that, that profess Jesus as their Savior, their Lord, are celebrating it today, the resurrection is still profoundly personal. Jesus calls us out by name. Peter, I haven't given up on you. I'm going to restore you. Mary, why are you crying? Your Savior lives. The resurrected Jesus is still spiritually calling people out by name if our hearts will listen. 
So we're going to continue and we're going to read, I'm going to read what many of your Bibles have as the closing verses in Mark's gospel. Uh, before we do, it should be noted that these verses, what, what I have in my Bible as verses 9 through 20, um, are unlikely original to Mark. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, both in, in style and the fact that it's not attached to many of the earliest manuscripts. Um, it's more likely a later, possibly a, just a second century um, summation of some post-resurrection encounters uh, added by another author. And nevertheless, you know, these could be called orphan texts. There's also a, actually the, the text in, you find in John 8, verses 1 through 11, of Jesus' interaction with the adulterous woman is a similar type text. Um, even though it may be an orphan text, it doesn't contradict what we know of these events by, according to the other uh, biblical accounts. So we'll read verses 9 through 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went, she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared to a different, in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So like I said, there we have kind of a summation, really you could say, of what happened after the resurrection, um, all the way to the Lord's ascension, and even looking forward to what we find in the books of, book of Acts and the early church. Right off the bat, though, allow me to note that the miraculous displays that are referred to in verses 17 and 18 are not meant to be understood that Christians are beyond the reach of harm. That would be a great abuse of, of those verses. And that would go against the entirety of the rest of Scripture and church history. Um, all the apostles, for example, experienced severe persecution. The early church experienced severe persecution. All of the apostles but John were martyred. It was only John that lived a long life. If you look at the life of the apostle Paul, Paul was, as these, this, uh, the, these verses refer to, at one time bitten by a venomous snake and miraculously not affected. 
But Paul also ended up being beheaded, executed by Rome. The point should be that when God chooses, he can show himself through miraculous signs through his people to authenticate what is being preached according to his good will. And as long as God chooses, he will keep his servants, his messengers, his people alive as long as he chooses. Even when that's in, in the face of the most deadly of circumstances. And again, you have testimonies of that throughout scripture and you have testimony of that throughout church history. But when their time on earth is done, as Paul wrote, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, the Lord will then allow their mortal body to die. All of us will set aside the mortal body. And whether it be by old age or sickness or tragedy or persecution or martyrdom, this body would die. Paul's body died. John's body died. Peter's body died, just like every other mortal body until the return of Jesus Christ or the final and the final resurrection of the dead. So I just wanted to, I wanted to bring some clarity there because those verses are often very abused. Before we hear this version of what Jesus speaks, of what we might call version of the Great Commission, um, we're given quick rundowns of how Jesus personally reveals himself to Mary Magdalene, how he personally reveals himself on the, to the two on the road to Emmaus, and eventually to the 11 remaining disciples. And what's sobering is, is in those first encounters, as, they, as people go back to tell the 11 disciples that they had seen the Lord, it says that they refused to believe. There was a refusal to believe, a stubborn refusal to believe. And I think, again, it begs the question, how am I responding to the message of the resurrection? Is there a refusal to believe? Really, somewhat ironically, these disciples then have to go out and their mission would soon be to, to do what couldn't be done for them. They would eventually become eyewitnesses of the resurrection and go and look to inspire faith in other people as those eyewitnesses, even though when eyewitnesses came to them, they wouldn't believe. It's good that they went out after Pentecost not in their own strength. And it's good that we go out, not in our own strength, but in Holy Spirit power. So on that note, next I want to reflect for a minute on the fact that Jesus' resurrection is not only personal, but it's powerful. The power is made most evident in the fact that death, the seemingly most permanent reality known to mankind was not permanent for Jesus. In Jesus' resurrection, we hear God taunting death. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Through the resurrection, the scripture tells us Jesus is proven to be who he said he was. He is proven to be the Son of God. Romans 1.4 tells us that through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. But the beauty is, is that 
Jesus' resurrection was not only powerful for Jesus. It's powerful for all who would receive him by faith. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So by his resurrection, he is also proven to be an acceptable final sacrifice to God the Father for our sin, that we may find forgiveness, that we may find right standing before God forever. And not only this, we can live in what Paul calls in Philippians 3.10, the power of the resurrection every day. That, that, that we can be freed from the death grip of sin. The Apostle Paul says, hey, listen, you've died to sin. Why would you live in it any longer? And now we can be empowered by the transforming influence of God's Holy Spirit to live like Jesus in obedience to the Father. And that could be every day. I can live in the power of the resurrection. And we've also been empowered, again, unto mission. The mission of the gospel. That like those early disciples, we can go from cowering, bumbling unbelief to bold, empowered ambassadors. Ambassadors that forever changed the world. And they didn't change the world because they were such amazing speakers. And they didn't change the world because they could play such amazing music. And they didn't change the world because their podcasts were right on point. And they didn't change the world because their video was always perfect. They changed the world because of the power of the message of a resurrected Jesus. And not only is the resurrection personal, and not only is it powerful, but in the resurrection, there's promise. There's a promise that tells us that, that just as death was not permanent for Jesus, it doesn't have to be permanent for me. It doesn't have to be permanent for anyone who would believe in him. That when I'm spiritually born again. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. When I'm spiritually born again, when I spiritually come back to life through faith in him, I'm promised that that life is life everlasting. It's a promise. And, and this happens first with the internal spirit. I come to Jesus in faith. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are the Son of God. You have lived a perfect life, died a perfect death for my sin. You've been risen from the dead. And I come to him in faith and surrender and repentance. And he says, now you have new birth. You are born again. You have come back to life in the spirit. But the promise is also for a future bodily resurrection. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 20 promises Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that word, phrase fallen asleep means physically died. So, so in other words, Jesus' resurrection is not meant to be an isolated event. Instead, it's meant to reverberate into the entire realm of death, that he is the first resurrection of many to follow. 
that there will be a day for all who have been born again, who have been raised in spirit in Christ, that even their body would be raised immortal forever, just as the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus' body was raised. So the resurrection is personal. It's a personal reality. Peter, Mary, those few, those few ladies heading to, the, heading to the tomb and the, the angels just waiting for them. It's a powerful reality. Powerful for Jesus, overcoming death. Then powerful for me and you, anyone who comes in faith. Powerful for, for forever and the future and a promise of future resurrection of the body and powerful for today. That's the promise of the resurrection that we live in. But as I close, let me ask you this. And just this to me was really fascinating. Would it seem strange to you, all that being true, would it seem strange to you if Mark's gospel actually ended at verse 8? Actually ended with this open ending, these, these trembling and bewildered women running from the grave with this, these, these marching orders, go tell his disciples and Peter. And they're like, and it says, they, they were so afraid they weren't telling anybody. Now, were they, were they on their way? I mean, we know the rest of the story. Surely Mark's audience at this point knew the rest of the story. But, but would it seem strange to you if Mark just left it there? Apparently, it seems strange to a lot of people through the ages. So strange that people tried to finish it for him, even in the second century. Well, you know what? I think we need to wrap this up a little more nicely with a bow. But maybe it shouldn't seem strange to us at all. R. Ellen Cole writes, Whenever God acts, it must always be with sufficient ambiguity for us to need the interpretation of faith if we are able to see the happening as an act of God. Could it be that Mark's ending is brilliant? Could it be that what Mark is doing and what Jesus often did with his story stories is, is said, you need to be in the story and you need to say, well, what are they going to do? What's going to happen next? Will they believe the angel? Will they, as the angel instructed, go and actually see him? Will they go and tell? Will they share the news as they're instructed? What will they do? So your grandma didn't get to drag you out to church today. And um, you're likely not in your Sunday best. You might be sitting on your couch in your pajamas. Um, it's really just a quiet, unassuming, maybe particularly quiet, <laughs> Easter morning. Just a Sunday morning, maybe a little bit like that quiet, unassuming morning over 2,000 years ago in which the most incredible thing ever happened. But it needed to be believed it needed to be received. It needed to be responded to in faith. 
And the encouragement was, go tell. It needed to be shared. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place they laid him, but go tell. Could it be that Mark is allowing us to say, what will I do next? If I was there, what would I do next? Me being here, what will I do next? Does the story now continue with us, with you?
Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, and your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 